2,000 years ago, in the Grecian city of Thessalonica, the Christian church had been duped by false teaching. Apparently, they had received a letter, a letter purporting to be from the Apostle Paul, stating that the final day of the Lord had already come. But there were some telltale signs that this letter was a fake. It lacked Paul's well-known handwriting and signature, which is why in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul draws his readers' attention to those very things. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The letter to the Thessalonian church that they had received evidently lacked those two things. Nevertheless, it was believed and its false teaching caused tremendous damage. Based on the letter's spurious content, Christians were worried that the day of the Lord had already come. The letter claimed there's no need for a personal return of Jesus Christ or his final judgment or his visibly triumphant reign. Can you imagine? (laughs) This is it. This is all there is. Jesus has already returned in some spiritual sense, and we're living now in the full-blown, consummated kingdom of God. And people were upset. Understandably so. Because if this is all there is, then God's salvation promises through the gospel of Jesus Christ have all been proved wretchedly false. This is what God has ultimately accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Faith was shaken. Biblical faith had been corrupted by false teaching. We find a similar situation in the book of 2 Peter. False teachers are attacking biblical truth at precisely this point. The glorious return of Jesus Christ and the final judgment. Truth reliably revealed by both the Old Testament prophets as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and by the eyewitness attestation of the New Testament apostles. Both those groups. Peter makes this clear in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Just maybe flip ahead to that text. 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4. He writes, above all, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Maybe there's someone here today thinking along similar lines. But Peter's already thinking about the false teachers and their wicked agenda in our passage today in chapter 1. Read verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Which means the false teachers were dismissing the truth of Jesus' return by attributing The apostles' teaching to fables, myths, cleverly devised stories. Now, we don't know why 
We don't know on what basis the false teachers were denying the truth of Jesus coming, his parousia in the Greek. Uh, Those details are unknown to us, but we do know that in chapter 3, 4 to 13, Peter puts particular stress on the radical change in the created world that will accompany Christ's return. So probably, and this is a sanctified guess, but probably the false teachers thought the world would just kind of continue on as it was, denying any sort of eschatological climax in which good is rewarded and evil punished, which is why Peter emphasizes the certainty, the certainty of judgment in chapter 2, verse 3. And it's reasonable to assume this heretical outlook was tied to the false teacher's immoral lifestyle, which the Apostle Peter, he confronts it head-on in this epistle. Because one follows the other, right? I mean, folks, with no prospect of future judgment, why worry about living a righteous life, right? So, in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, that's the heart of our text this morning, the Apostle Peter turns to the doctrinal issue he thinks his readers are most in need of remembering in their present circumstances. The return of Jesus in glory and God's final judgment at the end of history. Those two things. And Peter highlights this matter again at the conclusion of his letter in chapter 3, which means... Jesus' return on the last day and its denial by the false teachers frames the central part of this epistle. And in his role as an apostle to the churches, Peter responds. He attacks this false teaching by reaffirming the power and the coming of our Lord and by citing two reasons why Christians can be certain, why we can be sure that Jesus' second coming will take place. Number one, the eyewitness testimony of himself and the other apostles who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. And two, the reliability of the prophecies of Old Testament Scripture. With those two things, we can have absolute confidence that Jesus is coming again. Look at your big picture in your bulletins. Christians can have absolute confidence that Jesus will come again. Amen. How so? At Jesus' transfiguration, Peter and the other apostles glimpsed Jesus' future glory. And the Old Testament prophets, who are utterly reliable because the Spirit speaks through them, confirm the same truth. And let me just clarify something at the outset, lest there be any misunderstanding. This sermon, this text, isn't first and foremost about affirming the creedal point that uh, Jesus will return, as, as true and as glorious as that truth is. First and foremost, this text is about the reliability of the New Testament witness of the apostles and the reliability of the Old Testament witness of the prophets, both of which attest to Jesus' return. All right? Do you see that distinction? It's, it's subtle, but it's very important. Which is why, in my drawn-out conclusion, and be prepared, I do go on for some length. In my conclusion, I want us to consider the authority, the authority of the Word of God, the authority of the Bible, and how the Bible is both a divine and human document. How does that work? 
Look at verses 20 and 21 of the text that Mary Jo read for us earlier. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let's begin in verse 12 of chapter 1. And I want us to keep a lookout in this section for three R's. Remind, refresh, remember. All right. Point number one. Peter writes as if on his deathbed, reminding his readers one last time of the truth that they've already embraced. So verses 12 to 15. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So, Remind you of these things, refresh your memory, your memory, and remember these things. Brothers and sisters, what this tells us is that our confidence in biblical truth is stabilized by constant review. Our confidence, your confidence in biblical truth is stabilized by constant review. Cast your eye over the opening 11 verses of this chapter. Do you recall last week's sermon? I mean, it was, it was heavy. <laughs> Um, it, it was hard to follow up points, but Peter is no theological slouch. But those 11 verses are the all things he's already told his readers. Look at verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, these last 11 verses, even though I know you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. So you already know the truth. You already have the truth. You are already firmly established in the truth. Nevertheless, The Apostle Peter is always going to remind them of these things. Why? Because he understands that part of his ministry is to remind Christians of what they already know. In fact, Peter feels a special urgency to keep repeating these same things over and over because he knows he doesn't have much time left. Look at verse 13. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And this, of course, refers to the prophecy that we find at the conclusion of John's gospel in chapter 21. Peter's death by crucifixion as a martyr. So that's what he's alluding to. And and so faced with, with imminent death, I mean, and Peter would have had his whole ministry With that shadow looming over him, Jesus said, I'm going to die for him. Faced with imminent death, Peter wants to make a last appeal to his readers. He loves them. Here's one last appeal. And he he trusts that the force of his, his deathbed appeal, as it were, is going to go on after his death. Verse 15. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Well, how in the world did you expect that to happen? through the letter of 2 Peter itself. By recording his exhortations and warning in written form, Peter hopes that 
what he said will have an enduring ministry in the lives of these believers. So just stop and think about that for a second. Think about what Peter's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to die soon. Quick, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, of things I've already told you. Let me remind you of things that you already know. Let me remind you of these things that you're actually already firmly established in. Let me just refresh your memory with that. And let me leave you with a a written remembrance of those same things. Not new insights, old stuff. Brothers and sisters, some things are worth repeating. Some things are learned well only through constant, constant review. Pastor Alex, I think he's out looking after kids, but this is for us, brother. This is something Christian leaders need to bear in mind. As men who have been set apart by the church to preach the gospel, we've been ordered by Jesus to preach standing at the foot of his cross until he returns in glory. And that's where we want to be standing today, next week, next month, next year, next decade. Stale and irrelevant as the message may sound to those with itching ears. Ears itching perhaps for new doctrine. Itching for something more relevant. Something more sophisticated. Something more hip. Something not so absolute and exclusive and intolerant. Something not so drenched in blood and sacrifice. Something more on the social justice front, perhaps, where the gospel can just be assumed. Not the old, old story of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, who loved and lived and died a substitutionary death for sinners, the just for the unjust, that he might reconcile us to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wisely noted The business of the church and of preaching is not to present us with new and interesting ideas. It is rather to go on reminding us of certain fundamental and eternal truths. Which is why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, right? Do this in remembrance of me over and over and over again. Because we're so prone to forget. The most important things need to be repeated. Parents, am I wrong? The most important things need to be repeated, which doesn't give pastors license to be boring in their teaching. A good teacher, a good preacher, learns how to teach old things in such a way as to make them fresh. But wise preachers and teachers plan for repetition. Plan for repetition, constantly reviewing what's central. So now Peter turns to the doctrinal Issues that his readers are most in need of remembering in their present circumstances, the return of Jesus Christ in glory and God's judgment at the end of history. And this theme takes us all the way into chapter 3. And the apostle cites two reasons why Christians can be certain, sure, that Jesus' second coming will take place. It's the eyewitness testimony of Peter himself when he saw Jesus transfigured and the reliability of Old Testament scripture. The prophets, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, testified, prophesied about that very thing. So we can be certain he's coming again. So let's look at that first one. Verses 16 to 18, Peter's eyewitness apostolic testimony to the coming of Jesus. He writes in verse 16, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And significantly, Peter shifts at this point from the first person singular in verses 12 through 15. So I will always remind you, I think it's right. I know I will make every effort. He he switches now to the first person plural in verses 16 to 18. We did not follow. We told you we were eyewitnesses. And of course, we refers to Peter and the other apostles, James and John, the three eyewitnesses of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And at this point, it might be wise to go back and look in some detail at this event to which Peter is referring. This event which proves Jesus is coming again in glory. That's why he references it, okay? So we call it the transfiguration and every gospel except John has a transfiguration account, which is interesting. I mean, he was actually one of the witnesses of it, but he doesn't have it in his gospel. But let's turn to the gospel of Luke, chapter 9, the text that uh, our sister read for us earlier. And here we read in Luke 9 that Jesus' transfiguration occurred on a mountain, probably Mount Mirren, eight days after Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Messiah. So eight days after, Jesus declares in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And of the 12 disciples, these three seem to be especially close to Jesus. Only they are present when he raises a a dead girl to life. Only they witness Jesus' agony in the garden. And only they witness his uh, glorious transformation, his transfiguration. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So think of how a caterpillar spins a cocoon and then emerges as a butterfly. That transformation is called a metamorphosis. And that's what happens to Jesus' face. He is transfigured. He is metamorphosed before them. We read in Matthew's gospel, his face shone like the sun. Think about that. You can't look at the sun for more than, you know, a second. Luke writes here, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Jesus is physically transformed into a radiant, shining figure. And his brilliance, his glory extends even to his clothing. 
Jesus is radiating the glory of God. He is exuding the glory of God. When people saw Jesus of Nazareth walking around day to day, he was just an ordinary looking fellow. He didn't have a a nimbus, a, a shiny halo over his head. People wouldn't have looked twice at our Lord. Day to day, no one was saying, there's the eternal son of glory right there. I can, it's so bright, I can see. But on top of this mountain, Jesus pulls back the curtain covering his divinity. Beloved, the divine form which the eternal son possessed before becoming a man is nothing other than the glory of God himself, the glory and the radiation of his being. And Jesus shows his disciples something of that glory now on the mountaintop as an encouragement to them. It's for their benefit and it's for our benefit too. Because if our understanding of Jesus is going to be biblical, loved ones, if it's going to conform with Peter's great confession in verse 20, but also Jesus' explanation of God's Messiah being rejected and killed in verse 22, then we need to picture the pre-existent son who dies a brutal, shameful death on a Roman cross in this book's climax as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Those are two sides of the same coin. Just like the three apostles, we need to see Jesus' face shining like the sun, his clothes white as lightning, radiating the very glory of God as God's chosen son dies for the sins of his people, as people spit into his face and drive nails through his hands and his feet. That's the biblical reality. That's the real Jesus. Verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. The Greek word there is exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem. And these two men probably represent the Old Testament witness of Scripture and all its yet-to-be-fulfilled promises. So Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. And now these two prominent figures, Moses and Elijah, two prominent figures from the Old Testament, they're back. They're, They're back from the intermediate state, what we call heaven where the disembodied souls of dead believers go after death. That place where God's presence is enjoyed by his people after death, before Jesus returns on the final day. And on that day, when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise with physical, glorified resurrection bodies. But these two men, Moses and Elijah, they've come back from heaven appearing in glorious splendor before the resurrection. And here they are talking with Jesus, talking with their Lord. Can you imagine? And Luke actually tells us what they're talking about. Moses and Elijah just aren't standing idly by, right, with their hands in their pockets, shooting the breeze with Jesus. They're talking to Jesus about the most important event in human history. Verse 31, they spoke about his departure, his exodus, 
which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That means Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his death and resurrection for sin and what God will accomplish through it. Moses and Elijah have come from heaven to talk with Jesus Christ about the gospel. And before I explain that a bit more, note that word fulfillment in verse 31, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem, this exodus. Jesus' exodus is part of God the Father's sovereign plan. Jesus' death and resurrection for sin is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. We must see that. It's the fulfillment of it. Our Lord's crucifixion wasn't a tragic accident that caught God off guard. And so he had to kind of cobble something together real quick to save the day and salvage human salvation out of the ruins of Calvary. No. All the people responsible for Jesus' murder did what God's power and will decided beforehand should happen. We read that in the book of Acts. So here's an underhand slow pitch to everybody, okay? It's not rhetorical. I want you to answer it. When Moses led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt... What was that great event, that great departure called? The Exodus. The Exodus Jesus is about to fulfill at Jerusalem is his death and resurrection. And just as the Egyptian Exodus, right after the first Passover lamb was sacrificed, just as that first Exodus saved God's people from the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh before entering the rest of the promised land, so the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's ultimate Passover lamb, saves sinners from our bondage and captivity to Satan and sin and death, so that God's people can enter the rest of the new heavens and new earth. It's a true, it's the true and greater Exodus. It all gets ratcheted up. That first Passover and Exodus under Moses, it both interprets and is ultimately fulfilled in the better, ultimate, eternal exodus accomplished by Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. That's how Luke expects us to read his gospel. He expects us to make those typological connections as we read this Mount of Transfiguration. These two men, Elijah and Moses, they were part of an animal sacrifice system. A system that was instituted by God at Mount Sinai, whereby God's people could be ceremonially cleansed from the contamination of their sins through the substitutionary death of an animal. Thus allowing God to live among them in their presence, in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle and later the temple. But there was nothing in the old covenant system of animal sacrifice that could finally, ultimately atone for sin. The blood of bulls and goats only warded off ceremonial uncleanliness. It could do nothing about the guilty conscience of the sinner. sinner. And Moses and Elijah, they both lived and died under that system. I think that's the point. They died under that system. The sins of God's faithful old covenant people were not finally dealt with under that covenant. Judgment of sin was merely delayed in history until it was punished in the body of the world's only Savior, Jesus Christ. The sins of the Old Testament saints were paid for on credit, right? But it was Jesus who paid the bill. And here's Moses and Elijah. They're back from the intermediate state 
talking with their Savior. No doubt marveling, marveling at the plan of God, marveling at how Jesus was going to enact another greater exodus that would pay the bill for their sin. Not an exodus of Hebrew slaves from the tyranny of Egypt, but an exodus of the whole people of God, Jews and Gentiles, members of both covenants, all, all freed from the tyranny of slavery to sin and death and evil forces and powers that exalt themselves against God and all through what God will fulfill in Jerusalem through Jesus' exodus, his death and resurrection. What a scene this is. And there's three apostles witnessing it. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Well, the apostle Peter, he reacts quickly and incorrectly, as per usual. Verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. So in order to delay the departure of Moses and Elijah, because these men are leaving, we read in verse 33, in order to delay that departure, Peter suggests to Jesus they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze on the mountaintop. And the main activity of the Feast of Tabernacles involved constructing shelters to live in for one week. So let's prolong this now for one week, Lord Jesus. So if Jesus is amenable to that proposal, then this awesome experience is going to be very, very prolonged. Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Do you see Peter's mistake? One booth for Moses, one booth for Elijah, and one booth for Jesus, the eternal Lord of glory. What's Peter done? He's compromised Jesus' uniqueness. Peter thinks Jesus is being elevated to their great stature. The stature of the mediator of the Sinai covenant and the first of the great biblical prophets. Jesus is in in some pretty exalted company here. But he's terribly, terribly, blasphemously mistaken. What the presence of Moses and Elijah signifies, rather, is that the law and the prophets bear witness to Jesus. And in a terrifying display, heaven reacts forcefully to Peter's error. Verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Do you recall how when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai, how a thick cloud covered the mountaintop? It's the same thing here. Cloud imagery is used in the Bible to depict Yahweh's presence. God is presencing himself on this mountaintop, and he has something to say. Verse 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And as God the Father tells the disciples 2,000 years ago, so he tells us all today. There is no higher authority than Jesus, my chosen son. My chosen son takes precedence over Moses and Elijah. He comes first. 
My chosen son is more important. My chosen son is greater. My chosen son outstrips Moses and Elijah. And every other religious pretender who would steal his royal crown. Listen to my chosen son. He is the climax of all biblical revelation. He is utterly unique. Okay, with all that glorious truth under our belts, let's turn back now to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The apostle writes, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, a very interesting point to consider is that is why does Peter go to the transfiguration to confirm the truth of Jesus' return in glory? Why not, for instance, his ascension to heaven, right? Um, Because we read in Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11, that two angels promised that Jesus would return, right? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Doesn't that text kind of sound like a more likely candidate to use to clarify that, no, Jesus' return isn't false teaching. He is coming again. Well, it's tricky. And in the explanations that I read, I like two interpretations best, uh, but I'm not sure that we have to choose between them. So I'm presenting them both to you here and saying, just mix them up. I think they're both good. They're both true. They both work. I listed them in your handout. Doug Moo, he thinks this. Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' transfiguration, which prefigured his return by revealing him as the glorious king. He goes on to explain, as its name suggests, the transfiguration involves a transformation in Jesus' appearance but it's a transformation that reveals his true nature. And it's this glorious and majestic nature, hidden, as it were, during his earthly life, that will be revealed to all the world at the time of his return. Simply put, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king. And Peter was there to see it. He therefore has utter confidence that Jesus will return as the glorious king and establish his kingdom in its final and ultimate form. And what's working in the background with that interpretation is Psalm 2, our call to worship this morning, which is an enthronement psalm, a psalm about the king of Israel, the Messiah. Verses 17 and 18. He received honor and glory from God the Father, When the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain or the holy mountain. And Psalm 2, verse 6, uses precisely this phrase just before the words to which the voice from heaven alludes. We read, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. 
Which means, according to Mu, and I like this a lot, Peter is accentuating the notion of Jesus' kingship. A kingship revealed in the transfiguration experience. Now, Don Carson wouldn't disagree with that, but he thinks Peter fastens on this particular event because in some ways, in some ways, it points to a couple of major turning points in redemptive history. He would argue the transfiguration points back to the incarnation. You can read this in your bulletin. In some ways, it enabled Peter, James, and John to glimpse something of Christ's genuine pre-incarnate glory, now veiled in flesh. It's the eternal son, right? Which also, while also pointing forward to the parousia, the, the appearance of Jesus at the very end of history, when he will appear in unshielded glory and bring in the consummation. But what we must notice is Peter's point, his whole argument, is that the fact of Jesus' glorious transfiguration and thus also the belief that Jesus will come again in glory rests on apostolic eyewitness testimony. Peter's not content to simply deny that Jesus' return is built on a myth. He's not saying, no, that's just not true, just leave it at that. He positively asserts this teaching is the direct product of apostolic eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But that's not all. That's just half the argument. Look at your big picture again in your bulletins. Christians can have absolute confidence that Jesus will come again. At Jesus' transfiguration, Peter and the other apostles glimpse Jesus' future glory and the Old Testament prophets who are utterly reliable because the Spirit speaks through them, confirm the same truth. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. In other words, the New Testament apostolic witness fulfills this Old Testament prophetic word. It authenticates it yet further, making its authority all the more transparent, which then bolsters Peter's argument, right? He's saying the Old Testament prophets, they predicted that the Messiah would establish a universal and glorious reign. They said he would. But the false teachers that I'm combating now, they're, they're, they're so spiritualizing these Old Testament prophecies that they eliminate any future reference. But the transfiguration which is an anticipation of Jesus' ultimate glory, his ultimate kingdom glory. The transfiguration shows that the words of the Old Testament prophets must be taken with full literal force. And I was there. I saw it. We, verse 19, that is Peter and his readers, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As, a light, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Beloved, by paying attention to the word of the Old Testament prophets, light dawns on us and the darkness recedes. As we pay attention to Scripture, it illuminates us. It forces our darkness to recede its truth, its values and direction, in short, its gospel revelation. It gets inside us, inside us and it transforms us. That's what Peter's saying. Okay, we need to start wrapping up, but 
I want to wrap things up in a protracted, drawn-out sort of way. So look with me now at the last two verses of the text, verses 20 and 21. You see, here's my intention. With the help of these two verses, I want to fine-tune our understanding of the inspiration and authority of Holy Scripture. Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. But prophecy, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me say it again, brothers, sisters, this sermon, this text isn't first and foremost about affirming the creedal point that Jesus will return as true and as glorious as that truth is. First and foremost, this text is about the reliability of the New Testament apostolic witness and the reliability of the Old Testament prophetic witness, both of which then attest to the return of Jesus Christ. It goes without saying, the authority of the Bible must be recognized by Christians. The church cannot exist, the church cannot flourish without unreservedly embracing the Bible. All the words in Scripture, all of them, they're God's words, in such a way that to disbelieve or to disobey any word of the Bible, as it's being properly interpreted, is to disbelieve or disobey God. Which is why, in New City's Confession of Faith, the first article to which every member must subscribe without reservation is, the Church accepts the Holy Scriptures as the only supreme and complete authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. Desiree, this is something you are confessing when you join this local church today. Heaven, this is something that you are confessing when you join this local church today. But at the same time, it's essential we understand that the Bible didn't come down to us from heaven on a rope. I I say that because many Christians have an almost mystical, an almost mystical view of the composition of Scripture, of, of, of angels whispering into the ears of the prophets and apostles who then merely act as court stenographers, taking it all down. Beloved, we need to be affirming two truths simultaneously. Look at your handout. You can see these again. Number one, the God of the Bible is a God who acts and talks. He is personal. The Christian's view of the Bible is tied to the doctrine of God who discloses himself in deeds and words. Right? You, you have to understand that first. The God of the Bible isn't some abstract, unmoved mover, some spirit that's impossible to define, some mystical experience. He is a person. He has personality. And he discloses himself in words that human beings understand. Right through the whole Bible, that picture of God constantly recurs. However great or transcendent God is, he is a talking God, and he reveals himself to us, his creation. Second, the Bible is simultaneously the product of God's mind and of human minds. 
What does 2 Timothy 3.16 tell us? All scripture is God-breathed. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful picture? All scripture is like breathed out by God. Which is sometimes translated inspired. Scripture is given by the work of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of Scripture's inspiration. But what we see in these last two verses of 2 Peter 1 is actually the method. All right? The human authors of the Bible did not think up what they wrote on their own. These are not cleverly devised stories. No, God is the origin of what they prophesied. Humans used their own words. And those words were precisely the words God wanted them to use. Prophets, though human, Peter writes, spoke. Right there you see the human part. Prophets, though human, spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is what theologians call the concursive theory of inspiration. Concursive. It pictures God in his sovereignty by whatever means, so superintending and preserving the human authors that what they wrote, while being precisely what they intended should be written, was nothing less than what God intended should be written, thus ensuring its veracity and its authority. The concursive theory of revelation. That's very important. So, as Peter wrote his two epistles, as King David wrote Psalm 23, they both used their own thoughts, their own vocabulary, they used their own personality as they were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. And what they wrote was so superintended by the Spirit that every word was God's word. As much as God himself wrote it on the side of a mountain with his finger. That's what we have here. Now, yes, sometimes in the Bible, God's words in verbatim quotations are being recorded. Sometimes the biblical authors are actually acting as court stenographers. That's clear. We, we see that in the book of Jeremiah. But that the styles, the themes, the research, witness, emotions, commitments, and words of the human authors are preserved is no less clear. That's what I want to say about the inspiration of Scripture. I don't talk about that a whole lot. This is one of those texts you want to go to and find out, but it's important that we understand this. Let me conclude now with just a few words about the apostolic witness, which is a major theme in this text. New City, that first generation of apostles... Those men who witnessed everything in Jesus' public ministry, starting with John's baptism, straight through to our Lord's ascension, that first generation of apostolic witnesses mediated the gospel to other later believers. Right? When we consider Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his glorious transfiguration, his claims to divine authority, his death, and what he said his death would accomplish, his resurrection from the grave... His ascension into heaven, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the power of the gospel in forming a renewed people of God, we can know, we can know with certainty what happened in history, how God, in fact, fulfilled all of his Old Testament promises in Jesus Christ 
through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. That's our access point. We're not mixing chemicals and beakers and putting them over Bunsen burners and coming to scientific conclusions about Jesus' ministry. The claims of Christianity are historical claims. And as such, they are utterly dependent upon first century eyewitness testimony. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul basically says, if Jesus didn't truly, physically rise from the grave in history, then the apostles are all liars and everybody's going to hell. Your faith is useless. Which also means when Muhammad comes along six centuries after the fact and claims that Jesus did not die on a cross and rise from the grave... He's making an historical claim, isn't he? That's an historical claim. It's theological too, but it's an historical claim. But it's a claim that contradicts the first century eyewitness testimony of the apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus, who talked to the resurrected Jesus, who ate with the resurrected Jesus, and who touched the resurrected Jesus. And that apostolic eyewitness testimony was then passed down to the church in various forms, orally at first. The apostles went all over the Roman Empire, preaching and teaching, planting churches, and they told people what Jesus said and did. They preached it, right? And they showed from the Old Testament scripture how Jesus is actually the long-promised Messiah. But then things began to be committed to paper, written down. Right? In a pretty comprehensive way. And sometime in the late 50s or early 60s, one of the first of the first century, a Jewish Christian named John Mark became, we think, the first person to write a full-length theological biography of Jesus of Nazareth. We've come to know it as the gospel according to Mark. Matthew's gospel is first in its placement within the, new, within the order of the New Testament books, but Mark's gospel was almost certainly the first gospel written. And Mark's main historical source is the Apostle Peter. We have all sorts of church testimony, external evidence, testifying to that fact. New City, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, They are all reliable theological histories describing historical events, the greatest events to transpire in the history of the world, the incarnation, mission, death, resurrection, and exaltation of the divine Messiah. And two of the Gospels, Matthew and John, are written by apostles of Jesus Christ, men who lived with him for years. In the case of Mark, His gospel, the disciple Peter, is the main historical source. And the gospel according to Luke is a gospel dependent upon the gospel of Mark. We know Luke had Mark's gospel open before him as he wrote. 65% of Mark's verses appear in Luke. 65%. But Luke tells us in his opening that he also consulted other sources and did fresh, fresh research of his own. Brothers and sisters, the very foundation of the Christian faith is something none of us witnessed with our own eyes. Not one person here. And yet, 
We fully, we fully believe. Think about that, right? 2,000 years of church history and the number of Christians who actually heard and saw Jesus of Nazareth during his public ministry with their own eyes, who heard him with their own ears, can be numbered in the tens of thousands. And those who saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes can be numbered in the mere hundreds. And yet, the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to advance. Every day, sinners hear the good news proclaimed of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son for sin. Every day, sinners repent and believe. Every day, sinners are saved. And we read in Revelation 7 that a great multitude no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language will be standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But with the exception of that first generation, not one person included in that innumerable multitude that nobody can count ever saw Jesus before believing on him for salvation. Not one. So how can Christians be so sure? I mean, I'm banking my eternal soul. This is true. You are too, right? We're banking our eternal souls on this. How can we be so sure? Those first eyewitnesses, do they have us at a disadvantage, New City? Was their hope more certain than yours, Desiree? Was their faith more robust? Was their knowledge more true? Make no mistake, the evidence of the physical senses is important. That's why all Jesus' resurrection appearances were up close and tactile. Jesus spoke with people. He ate with people on purpose. Jesus made it a point, right, to display his very unique death wounds, still visible in his glorified flesh. But there's a more certain testimony that the gospel is true. Desiree, sister, I want you to hear this particularly on the day of your baptism. There is a more certain testimony that the gospel is true, even than placing your hands in Jesus' wounds or seeing him with your own eyes or, or hearing his voice with your own ears. This is for all of us. The witness of the apostles, as recorded in the four canonical gospels, a witness which confirms the Old Testament prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is the more certain witness. Amen.